I saw nothing but the good side of it then. And now I realize that there was still a lot of work to do and there were a lot of things from me being objectified or objectifying myself, as the case may be, to really standing my ground when I could have pushed for more money, I could have pushed for a better slot at the festival, where I kind of see now looking back that there was still some pretty atrocious gaps between the male-led and dominated world and where I found myself in the midst of it. That was Grace Potter, and this is Shiro's, a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. I'm Carmel Holt, and what you're about to hear is a previously aired interview from my syndicated public radio show, Shiro's Radio. Shiro's is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss challenges and triumphs, how far we've come, and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music better for everyone. It's been said that legends are born, not made. But when it comes to the rock world, being born a woman who is destined for stardom usually requires a little bit of both. Enter Grace Potter, an exceptional singer, songwriter, keyboardist, and one of the 25 greatest guitarists ever, according to Rolling Stone, not to mention being widely considered one of the most electrifying performers seen on a stage in the past 20 years. That's where yours truly first had my mind blown by Grace Potter at the Mountain Jam Festival in Hunter New York, performing with her band, The Nocturnals. Her star power, her talent, and infectious energy were undeniable. Born in 1983 in Vermont, Grace has been releasing records since she was 19, starting with two solo albums in 2002 and 2005, followed by four studio albums as Grace Potter and The Nocturnals between 2005 and 2012, and three more solo albums, 2015's Midnight, Daylight in 2019, and just weeks ago, Mother Road, a concept album of sorts and a new high watermark in this self-made legends catalog. I'm thrilled to welcome Grace Potter as this week's Shiro in the Spotlight. Grace Potter, welcome to Shiro's. Yes. Yes. At long last, I have you. I have you all to myself for the next 45 minutes. I can't wait. We have, this, we have all of the afternoon. I've been saving up for this all day. <laughs> oh, my God. And nothing makes me happier than to spend time with you. We go way, way, way back. We were just talking about, I think it was the first time that I met you back in 2009. Yeah. There's a photo somewhere. I'm going to dig it out, hopefully in time for this episode to drop of the two of us twinning, which is our apropos to our Gemini natures together. Yes. Congratulations on Mother Road. Thank you so much. This is just the funnest journey I've ever been on. And I always love like circling back to people and seeing their transformation over the years. But like we really have years under us. We can talk about a lot of things. We can talk about a lot of things. Yes. Also, <laughs> congratulations on reaching the four zero milestone this year. It felt very freeing. It felt like being caped, mm -hmm. like a hero, you know, like James Brown, yeah. you know, it's like once you get your 40 cape on, there's no stopping us. Open secret. I also passed a milestone marker, but it's uh, not a four, but a five in front of that zero this year. What? Yes. Wait, are you made of some kind of weird <laughs> silicone? <laughs> Because you don't look, I thought you were younger than me. Even when I, when we first met, I thought you were younger than me. Because I think I asked you, like, how'd you get this job? Would you, what, you what did you, ask you know? me that. Yeah. Dude, your and memory is I, scary. Well, I like remembering an entire experience. And I think Hunter Mountain and Mountain Jam, where we met yeah. and took a photo together, that was a formative time. 
And I think there's moments in your life when your brain is more receptive right. and remembers like every single thing that happened. And that whole summer, like right down to the smell of the ground yeah. beneath us, yeah. like, that is a very vivid memory. It is for um, me too. Yeah. You know what I remember about that actually? I was thinking back to that time and I was thinking about how intimidated I was by you at first. Like, you're so hot, okay? Like, and I work in an industry full of dudes, and everyone yep. is freaking the fuck out about Grace Potter and how hot she is. And everyone was clamoring to do the interview. And I don't yeah, know yeah. how I got to do it, but I was so simultaneously intimidated, but also feeling really proud of myself. Yeah, like you deserve to be there. You earned that spot. And yeah. and how cool it was that it was going to be us talking versus a dude who is also totally yeah. on your shit. Well, the thing is, is that when you can build your career around the things that you don't get to choose, like if you know how you don't like things to be, yeah. I, you must have been just far enough along in your career to have positioned yourself into a place of, I deserve this, I'm going to do it. Because I remember our conversation, but I also remember you being extremely good at your job right off the top. Thank like, you. you can kick out confidence or you can kick out, I can't believe I'm here. Who, me, what? Yeah. And, I, you know, I think, again, the Gemini spirit brings that might maybe out in us a little bit. There's always going to be voices in our head saying, how did I get here? But you just kind of shut that one up and let the other one talk. <laughs> well, let's talk about you and your journey with all of this stuff. So at the time, you did have Cat Popper on bass, which was awesome yeah. for me to see. And oh, I love her. You know, it was definitely a much more male playing field at the time. Talk to yep. us about your journey in that regard. How did you navigate all these years in a sea of men? And how has that evolved for you one way or the other? I think I noticed at the time that it was not just that there was more men than women. It was that there was a misunderstanding about the nature of being a woman in that world. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you can compare it to college admissions or any other thing. But basically that if I got through the boilerplate levels of the video game and I was at the place that I was at, which at the time, it was super exciting. The first year I played there, I was on the little side stage. You're sludging around in the mud and it was nothing but like a farmer's market tent over our head. <laughs> and so the year that I, that I spoke with you, 2009 was a pretty seminal year. It was a big year for my band. It was a big year for me in my visibility on TV. I did the VH1 Divas thing that following winter and just sort of made myself known, stake my claim in a very low competition zone in that wow. we were a, you know, 70s rock inspired band mm -hmm. with a songwriter like me who is speaking from a perspective of an old soul and looking at the world through eyes as if I'm looking back almost mm -hmm. like a wise old woman singing songs about her past. And that was always in the nature of my songwriting. Even before the Nocturnals, I was always writing songs from this perspective of this higher me, this elder wow. kind of chic. Yeah. And I think I found it to be advantageous to be a female in that world. Now, looking back, there are definitely things that I see where the trickle-down effect served being a woman and that there are things about it also that when I shake the blanket out, it's not so awesome where you're just like, oh, that wasn't cool. But for the most part, I didn't see that. I had my blinders on mm -hmm. and I was very much in that frame of mind of like, I'm not a victim. I'm lucky. 
I'm happy. I got these people that actually like to hang out with me enough to be in a band with me. I just couldn't believe my luck. And there was a record company that was like propping me up and putting my poster out on walls. And at the time, Barnes and Noble was still a thing. And I'll never forget because My Morning Jacket was also playing that year. And Patrick Hallahan, the drummer, we were eating together and he was like, man, I saw your poster at Barnes and Noble. How'd you get that? It's just You guys are just doing the thing, dang it. And I saw nothing but the good side of it then. And now I realize that there was still a lot of work to do. And there were a lot of things from me being objectified or objectifying myself, as the case may be, to really standing my ground when I could have pushed for more money. I could have pushed for a better slot at the festival, where I kind of see now looking back that there was still some pretty atrocious gaps between the male-led and dominated world and where I found myself in the midst of it. But that's sort of a roundabout way of saying it's all about how you look at things. Yeah. And it sounds like you had a really positive outlook that served you. And yeah, I've heard from a lot of women, too, like the best thing that you can do in those moments is be the thing instead of worrying about not being the thing or not having the permission to do the thing. Just be the thing. And I think that that's something that you have always, always done. And I've admired you for now. Here you are. Is this album four solo? So this is album five, technically, because I had two records that I never talk about. Mm. But uh, before the Nocturnals, there was an album that I did called Red Shoe Rebel that I produced in Waitsfield, Vermont, when I was a teenager. Spent the first year of what would have been college making that record. Then I made Original Soul. And then the subsequent Nocturnals records, Nothing But The Water, This Is Somewhere, and the eponymous Grace Potter and the Nocturnals record, The Line The Beast of Eve. So those were the Nocturnals years. And then Midnight marked the beginning of my label. This is my third record that I've used only my name for. But I also think that being that I was a solo artist before that, solo means a different thing to me now because I certainly am not solo on stage. I have a huge, awesome band and a lot of crackling rock and roll energy that I didn't have in those years before I had the band. I just watched some of your CBS Saturday morning performances. And of course, because I'm me and I'm in the lane that I'm in, I was like, ah, yes, three out of the five people on stage are women. So happy to see that. Yeah, I tipped the scale finally. Yeah, did you do that intentionally? (laughs) The decision making is always music first, I'm sure for you. But did any of that equity conversation come in? There was a lot of that consciousness going into it. Mainly the consciousness that I brought to building the band this time around was actually more about age and skill set and curiosity. There was a conversation being had with my managers about getting a band of like real like road dogs. Like, Grace, it's time for you to shine. It's time for you to get a band that's like, there's just no question about whether somebody is a good player or a bad player or what they look like. It's just like a bunch of invisible people, like a bunch of people dressed in black hiding and, you know, 20 feet from stardom kind of shit. And I didn't like that at all. I also, when I started looking into and auditioning players, found that the list of people being submitted to me was continuously a lot of white males in their 30s and 40s, which just triggered something. And I always need a rub. In my life, I love a good rub. I love a good, just grate that cheese. If you, you know, I am the cheese to the grater and it it gets yummier and more delicious when I'm presented with what I'm being told are the options, which I absolutely refuse to accept as the options. Thank you. You know, so I started going on Instagram and looking for young players. 
I literally was on Instagram just surfing around watching guitar player videos of people that I had to make sure that they were alive, that they weren't like retro videos, that they actually had a geolocation, preferably somewhere near-ish to me on the East Coast, but also didn't even limit myself to that. And I just started sifting through players and found so many insanely talented people, females and males, but mainly just the focus being on passion and curiosity more than this is the pro that I got to have. You know, the learning curve is always going to be a thing, whether they're super pro or not. But I'd rather find people who are kind of in this position of like, wait, why? Why me? Why'd you call me? And India, my new guitarist, is asking that question. And one of the things that really stuck with me was that when I flew her in for the audition, her mom was like, why? To her, you know, I thought this was just something you were doing in your bedroom. I thought that this was an interesting road for you to take. I'm glad you're into music, but is this really what you're going to do? And what do you think is going to happen? What do you expect is going to happen? And in a way, I think she was asking the right questions as a mother. I would ask my kid that. But when India told me that at the audition, it really stuck with me that sometimes in life, you do kind of need a permission slip to take yourself out of one reality and into another and I just thought, what if the universe works different than that? What if you don't need permission? What if you don't need a hall pass? What if you don't need a reason? What if simply I saw something in her that felt timeless and ageless and from elsewhere <laughs> in the same way that I connect to with music? And she had a great ear and you could tell that she worked hard on these videos and she loved doing it. But I also didn't know if she would ever even want to go on the road. So it was a really fun journey. Jordan as well was someone who came from the safety net career of like she worked for Roland keyboards and would come around and demo stuff for people and show them all the cool stuff that the gear can do. And that was her job. And then playing drums was like the thing she did for fun. And the same goes for Curtis Kieber, my bass player, who continues to refer to himself as a carpenter, even though he's a badass bass player. And Charlie Shea, my other new guitarist, who for me, it was done when I found out that his main job was calling out bingo and running the karaoke machine at a VFW for retired veterans by a train track because he loves trains and he loves old people and he loves old music and bingo. Wow. It's that curiosity in the world that to me is so much more valuable than how many hours you've logged on the road, you know? Thank you for sharing all that with us. And also I was intrigued and kind of relieved in a like kind of twisted way to hear <laughs> about how that process worked with building your band and the options that were floated to you and how you pushed back on that. Because rather than trying to like always focus on, well, here's the problems, I'm always searching for answers. And part of the answers yeah. is like digging for why? Why does that happen? Why? And how can yeah. we change that? And what power do we have in those situations to make that change? Yeah. And so what I'm hearing you say is that part of the problem or the challenge is that we have to, first of all, start to shift our minds about who's on that list initially, yeah. who's getting floated that list forward. Is ridiculous. Right. Yes. Yes. Right. And why are they being propelled forward? And granted, if you're looking at the stats of those people that were on that list, they do log those hours, but there's decades of them logging those hours because they were the top called person on the list. So right. those hours that they're putting in and the going from a green young musician who doesn't know what it means to pay their dues and has only ever made YouTubes to getting out on the road and being a true pro, it only comes with giving somebody the opportunity to do that and not asking yourself too many times why. 
but rather how? How come? And how can we? And, you know, it was a really, really steep learning curve because the first gig that we had with Charlie in India, because Curtis and Jordan have been with me since daylight. I met them basically between midnight and daylight. But one of the most interesting things about that list and those hours logged and that system and the questions that I was asking myself and that rub that I was feeling is also that... I'm an innovator in a way that I didn't realize wasn't so much creative as it was social. Like, I'm a social creature. So I was trying to innovate the social understanding of what the bus would feel like, what my days would look like. And I wanted young people. I wanted old people. I wanted anything other than what I am. I wanted to create not an echo chamber, but rather a multiverse of interests and tool sets of people who know both what they're doing and know what they don't know yet. And so our very first gig was Radio City Music Hall. (laughs) (laughs) No big, no big at all. I thought, like, let's just throw all of us to the wolves. Because, like, I am a pro and I'm a well-seasoned vet of the television and large venue world. I've worked with unions. I know about New York. It's a lot of things all at once to process. But this was specifically an NBC event. So it was a private event. So it felt a little more like it had a container around it, not like it was just suddenly, okay, you're live on TV, go! But it was, you know, yeah, three days of rehearsal, four days of rehearsal, and then just let's do this thing. And it was a bit more to bite off than I really could chew. And I realized I kind of wanted to be dick deep in hot water for the first time in a long time. It felt like the early days with my band where I'm like, is this going to work? Can we? Yeah. How? Not should I, how can I? Yeah. And we got there. We got there. I mean, I was definitely scared. I was nervous. I felt responsible for everybody, but it also didn't weigh on me at all it broadened my curiosity. And I think everybody else in the band felt that as well. It felt electrifying. What a story. Grace Potter's here with us on Shiro's. <laughs> the new album is called Mother Road. Let's go to music here. What do you want to start with today? I mean, we can totally begin at the beginning with the song Mother Road, which tells the story and sets the stage for listeners at home. This is the movie poster song. It's like the opening credits. It doesn't give it all away and it gives you a sense of what you're getting into while keeping just enough secrets, just like the road herself.
Mother Road title track to the new Grace Potter album. She's our guest today on Shiro's. I'm Carmel Holt. This album feels like it's waiting to become a movie or a memoir or both. How much fact, how much that. fiction is happening here, Grace? It is a combination of many iterations of myself and characters that I've killed off in my life and inside of myself, as well as brought back to life. I mean, it's very much like one of those daytime TV melodramas meets a sexploitation movie from the 70s, meets a wild goose chase bank robber, you know, Japanese filmmaking was my passion. And so there's so many things about it that make me want to have like some hand-to-hand combat and I want to see people fighting, but I don't want to see a gun. Again, there's like these things about life that I see and then I sing about, but I see them first always. And in this making of this record, I was seeing so much. I was actually kind of like location scouting my album through these drives I was doing as I was taking to the road. I drove back and forth across the country four times over the course of two years. Four. I knew there was the one, right? That was the first sojourn. It sounded like a soul journey, a healing journey for yourself. And I knew that there was maybe one or two more, but four. That's wild. Yeah. Back, forth, back, forth. Okay. So there was the crisscross um, west to east, then east to west, then west to east, and then one more final drive, which actually took us to Nashville to record the album. But then from Nashville, we continued west. And then I brought Eric and Sagan on my very last sojourn. So it was cool to have my family with me after three times across the country by myself it felt really enriching and kind of brought it home just how much it means to me to be a mother, but also feel so free at once. I think it's a gift that not everybody gets when they enter into parenthood. It was almost humiliatingly humbling. Like I felt shy and kind of awestruck, like the way you do when you first write a song as a teenager and then play it for someone. It felt incredibly vulnerable for me to invite my family into this journey with me. But that's where the good stuff is. Oh, 100%. By the way, I'm drinking wine. Yes, now. love it. It's 3.45 in the afternoon. 3.42. 340, yeah. This is mommy, mommy o'clock. Mommy o'clock. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Because yeah. you probably have yeah. to go to bed early with a child. Yeah. So. Yes. 6 a.m. is his wake up time because we have to have him to the school no later than 7.45. I mean, No one tells you how traumatizing parenthood is (laughs) and that it's just going to bring up all the same feelings and insecurities that you had when you were going to school. School stuff is wow. Yeah. Yeah. Intense. Yeah. And, you know, so I started doing this Shiro's project back in 2019. And when I first started it, it was more motivated from a place of like, okay, all the years of doing stuff related to music and doing tons and tons and tons of interviews and never really getting to dive deep into these areas, which I really wanted to. And I'm a like dyed in the wool feminist. Yes. So I wanted to bring those two things together. And I felt like pissed off a little bit that there there was still a lot of things that I felt were wrong uh, in the world and also specifically music um, in terms of equity. But what, one thing I didn't really think about was, and I don't know why, maybe it's because I'm not a mom, but I didn't think about the motherhood aspect of it, but it's come up so much. And it's like something yes. that we don't actually talk about that much, except Ugh. except for when journalists say, so how do you balance motherhood and being a musician? Which is like, exactly. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's this dumb thing that I feel is like the mom shame game. Yeah. Where it's basically like, oh, so what's it like to be an absentee mom? Basically is what I'm hearing. Right. And again, those are insecurities and things that I might be taking into conversations. But you can tell when somebody believes that it's possible and when they don't believe it's possible. Right. Right. And I'm one of these weird freaks of nature who found a human being named Eric Valentine, my husband, who actually agreed and made a deal with me. We had an agreement from the beginning before making a child. We made a choice of what kind of life we wanted to live. And the feminist that grew up inside of me, died in the wool as well, was very clearly not done with her work, her very important public works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was clear and he knew it going in. But when I say freak of nature, I mean it is unnatural as far as many humans on the scale of evolution that we're at right now to understand what it feels like to be on the other side of that expectation and to just have it assumed that when you become a mother, you're done. Your job is done. All the work stuff goes away. It's obviously not the case with pretty much every female that I know, but yet we are still living in this weird grave that we're digging ourselves out of where it's not just an expectation, it's why, how? I defy you to be a mother and continue working. You just can't do it. And I don't judge people who choose not to, but I do judge the assumption that it's a choice at all. Yeah. Because it's not. Yeah. Agreed. You just do it. You just fucking do it. Yeah. And it's interesting, I will say, why aren't we seeing or haven't we seen over music history more women with long careers? Why do we see so many old dudes still making rock and roll out on the road and we don't see as many women? Why, when programming a radio station, are the classics and the legends always men? men? Why is it just Patti Smith and Chrissy Hind? And so one of the things I've been wondering is the combination of factors of ageism and sexism for women how we lose our sexiness somehow, why, why, as we age, how does that dovetail with motherhood? How does that influence choices by musicians, whether to become mothers or not, because they're trying to delay aging out? I was curious about any of that stuff for you. After having Sagan, I did like a few rounds of going to these women's circles and like being around other new moms. And I was out in Hollywood, which is a really different experience because I think out there there's a lot more conversation about these questions that you're asking. Growing up in Vermont, it's just not done. You're done. And you can keep working. I mean, my mom worked through all of raising us and doing all that stuff. But, you know, meanwhile, I would argue that my dad was given a lot more credit for every work he did and that there were years in which my mother's work was actually supporting us financially much more than my dad's was. And yet the story doesn't get told that way, even now. And I know that my family is just one example. I know that it's true across the board, that the way people want to posture their memories and their stories is around the creation of a thing comes from two people. One of them's got to stay home with that creation whether it's a movie or a homestead, like a farm, like what we have here in Vermont. And I would argue that it takes a village in both directions. I'm not just a self-made woman. I had so much help and I had tremendous communities of people, a tribe of people around me before I had a baby. But what we find in, at least out in Hollywood, in the women's circle that I was in, is that the tribe kind of walks away unless they all are in the same little echo chamber as you. 
And unless they're in the same boat as you and then we all have kids together, which again, I think those echoes exist in all of nature, that things move in one direction and you kind of all end up syncing up with one another or you lose each other and you just flutter off into the wind. And I just wouldn't allow it. I couldn't allow it. I didn't like it. And the feeling of going out to pasture, literally, I remember that, that one woman crying in the circle saying, I just, and she worked at a radio station and suddenly found herself coming back from her maternity leave with absolutely no position there for her. And she just said, I wasn't ready to be set out to pasture. And I literally bought a pasture in Vermont. So <laughs> I know what it feels like to sort of settle yeah. or feel like I'm not ready to settle. And speaking to the ethos of acceptance, where there's a trade-off, a lot of women I know haven't had kids for that very reason. And I think it presupposes an acceptance that you have to choose one or the other, or that if you do choose to have a kid, it's going to be a way more of an uphill battle. And while I admire the bravery of acknowledging that, I also refuse to accept it. And that's basically what my journey has been since becoming a mother myself, is to say, like, this uphill battle is bullshit. I'm done arguing with people about what it's like to be a, how do I balance it? And how does my kid, oh, but you know, I'm sure you do. And there's a lot of assumptions about what kind of a mother I am. I'm actually just not that there. I'm really good at it when I'm in the moment with him. But when I'm not there, it's because I'm doing something. I'm busy. And I need to be okay with other people not understanding that. But I don't need to think of it as a mountain. That's sort of the thing I've noticed for people who don't have kids. You don't really see it that way until you're in it and you realize, actually, it's okay as long as you have somebody supportive or somebody there with your kid. Otherwise, it does sort of suck to just leave your kid at home. You can't do that. You can't leave your kid at home alone. That doesn't work. I'm kind of joking, but yeah. I'm not joking that yeah. much. Yeah. Well, yeah. it actually made me wonder, is there a double meaning to Mother Road. Is this yeah. is this album not only about the Mother Road, which harkens back to the Steinbeck reference, right, of Route yeah. 66, but also your road as a mother? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought that it felt more true to who I am and also who I, I became as I was raised on the road in many ways. I raised myself into adulthood. I'd like to think that there was some separate entity that is the mother road. She's just sort of this spirit angel, higher self, or some kind of a ethereal Glenda the Good Witch that's been looking out for me. But I think as you explore the album, you can see that I definitely wander into the question of whether uh, mothers are even a safe thing for some people, or that relying on someone else to keep you safe is really the question you should be asking yourself when you're on a journey, when you set off on a trail. I blazed mine very young. At the age of nine, I actually ran away from home. And so a lot of the journey of the name The Mother Road came from the question of, what did I think was going to happen when I ran away? Like, what was my plan? And that reminded me of an imaginary friend that I made up named Lady Vagabond, who was my chaperone when I ran away from home. Wow. So that in case anybody came up to me and said, excuse me, little girl, but what are you doing out here on your own? I already had planned it in my nine-year-old head, that I'd be like, oh, Lady Vagabond's just pitching a tent over there. She's lighting the fire, and I'm waiting by the road here for water. Our friend is about to come. You know, I had a whole wild story that I was going to tell people, not that I ever had the opportunity to actually tell that story, because I got found out 
immediately after running away from home. My, <laughs> my neighbor's parents called my mom and my mom came over and, you know, found me a few hours later. But the fact that I had planned it that deeply in my head and that I had set in motion this idea that I would raise myself or that I would create this imaginary character that was a mother-like entity. It just goes to show that there was a perseverance inside me that I'm proud of. I, I was a brave little shit, you know? Well, I don't know which track to go to. I feel like this is leading us right into either Little Hitchhiker or Lady Vagabond, or yeah. maybe I could play a little clip of both back to back. Absolutely. You could even just start for the last verse of Little Hitchhiker, where in my real life, I ran away from home and was saved and picked up by my mom by the end of that day. But in the song, it presupposes that the journey continued, or maybe I didn't make it even on the very first night. Hitchhiker into Lady Vagabond, tracks five and six. It's kind of like the pinnacle moment in this 10-track amazing new album by Grace Potter, Mother Road. She's our guest on Shiro's. Now, Little Hitchhiker was co-written by another Shiro, Natalie Hemby, another mother. Yes. Was this the first time that you had worked with her? Have you worked yes. with co-writers a lot? I rarely work with any co-writers. Mm -hmm. When I do, it's because, again, the same sort of curiosity as to how two entities can intermingle and create something. And the whole song, Little Hitchhiker, started because we both had the same red suitcase when we were kids. It was this little red suitcase that said, I'm going to grandma's with this illustration of a little girl swinging her suitcase. So it's like a picture within a picture of a little girl with a suitcase walking along like a white picket fence on her way to see her grandma. So we started with that vision, again, very visual album that we have here. And I had never met her until that very day. 
And I went to her house and we just dove in because we'd been such admirers of each other. And I've always loved her songwriting and her presence on stage and her just really rarefied perspective and way of approaching really tough stories. And I thought this was an interesting one because I'm bringing her this idea of a song in which maybe I'm the hitchhiker, maybe I'm not, but let's just explore the archetype of a little girl running away from home. And it led to this song, which then, of course, very naturally led into the tale of Lady Vagabond, because that's essentially who she becomes. As much as Lady Vagabond was an imaginary character in my life, I think I was Lady Vagabond. And, and in my projection, my nine-year-old self-projection of who the coolest, safest, most trustworthy hero Shiro, Shiro would be in my life, <laughs> exactly. you know, that turned into the question that we were asking all day. And that song came from it. Then Lady Vagabond, I wrote later. And I would argue that that might have been like the ghost of Waylon Jennings kind of coming into my brain at certain points. And I got to visit with some of my more masculine, less cisgendered understanding of myself, which I think was another journey that really was an exciting one to go on with this record because I've always felt like this is my first time around as a woman, for sure. You know, so it was fun to explore that with Natalie and then take the tale of Lady Vagabond one step or maybe several karate kicks deeper. That's so interesting. I've always thought that, too, about Geminis, that we are, you hear about two-spirit people, you know, like yeah. trans people or bisexuals. I feel like that's part of the Gemini thing. Like we always have both the masculine and the yes. feminine going simultaneously. Again, the freak of nature side of me that I knew wasn't quite where I belong in the world all along. I mean, throughout this record lyrically, but I think you can hear it. And in all of my yearning and all of my desire, it's not like a fiery, passionate sexuality as much as it is a duality of my physical presence as a woman versus the what else is there? What else can this be? How else can I curate a life in which I don't belong anywhere? Because I know I don't. I know that I'm an odd duck, but how cool is that? And where can we go with that? And songwriting is one of the best ways to ask that question, I think. We have Grace Potter here with us on Shiro's. The new album is Mother Road. Where do we go next? I think since we were just talking about duality and gender expression, one of the things that we talk about a lot on this show, it's kind of obvious, and actually you and I touched on it when we first started to talk. We talked about, oh, our necklaces and, oh, you know, fashion and whatever, yeah. is presentation and owning our sexuality or hiding or yeah. all of the different choices that I think it's safe to say men don't really have to ponder too much in the music world. How have At you, all. How, right. Okay. I was being gentle. Let's just yeah. call it what it is, right? So. yeah. yeah. How have you navigated that and what's been your experience? I've come up against a lot of pressure with this, especially with other female people in the industry. Mm -hmm. I won't name names, but one person I admired really just to the ends of the earth kind of broke my heart when she told me that she didn't like the way I was dressing and she was concerned that I would never be taken seriously to a point where we got into it enough for me to understand why she felt the way she did, but I also didn't change the way I felt. And in fact, again, I love that rub. And the second that I was told, you can't, I wanted it even more than I ever did before. 
Because growing up, I was an ugly duckling. I had braces. I had glasses. I had dreadlocks for a hot minute there, hairy legs and armpits, and a very, very male presence, a masculine presence in my physicality all the way through until I was about 17 or 18 and finally maybe got some boobs. Not sure if you'd call them that, but somewhere in there, my life grew into an understanding of myself that didn't always include gender in the conversation. And when she exposed me to this opinion that I wouldn't be taken seriously if I feminized myself or sexualized myself, what I found myself feeling was that I have been waiting my whole life to explore gender. And I've been waiting my whole life to get hot, to have boobs, to know what my body parts do to understand exactly why my sister was so popular and why I wasn't, why I was such a late bloomer. And also now suddenly this just waterfall of attention on me in my early 20s because I was a public person, a talented person existing in the public, sharing my music and my personality and my perspective with the world where what people were seeing and what they were hearing, they didn't conclude in this place that everybody likes it to. It didn't all tie up pretty in a bow for them. And so what must be going on is I must be getting manhandled by my record company. I must be not making these decisions for myself. And the truth is, I think I was not only making the decisions for myself, but I was aggressively pursuing sexuality as a container for my frustration in being misperceived as a serious songwriter, as a real rocker. Because real rocker meant dressing like a boy and not as one of my lovely ex-guitarists would refer to me as peacocking out whenever I would put on mascara or lipstick. Are you peacocking it up in the front of the mirror? You know, and that really stuck with me as, yeah, motherfucker, I fucking am. And I know that makes you really insecure because the more I look good, the less people are going to notice you and your guitar playing right now. And I think that great up against me, up against the Parmesan cheese of me, was my opportunity to begin asking deeper questions about my position in the world as a female or as someone who had never really thought of myself as a female up until that point. And then how did that intersect with being taken seriously in reality? Like as a musician, as an instrumentalist, I mean, you play fucking everything. You're an amazing guitarist. You're an amazing keyboardist. You're an incredible singer and songwriter. Like you are like not only a triple threat, you're like a quadruple threat. Oh man. Amazing. Carmel, that makes me so happy that you see it that way. And again, the way that you're listing it off, it's all and, and, and. I think if I wanted to tell the story a different way, I could say that society has constructed women to have to do way, way, way more things in order to be amazing. But I didn't see it like that because I wasn't thinking about it like that. I wasn't thinking I have to do more to show how great I really am beyond this facade, this billboard sign of me that people are seeing as hot girl. But it actually was quite confusing for people. I just finished reading Debbie Harry's book and she talks about it a lot, but it's not the same because she wasn't playing an instrument. And I certainly didn't take like, oh, Debbie didn't, so I'm gonna. That'll make me better than her. It wasn't like that, but it was a conversation that I had with myself as the Nocturnals and the band sort of grew to a visible level. And I started seeing the deconstruction of other people's security as I was constructing my more secure and stately self. Mm. 
And when I say stately, I mean stately. I don't mean bombshell and I don't mean rock star. I just mean I was coming into my own as a person with a position in the world and a perspective. Creative forces are much more powerful than marketing tools, but it, it will never take away the bumper sticker that people want to put on you. And I think that my gritty unwillingness to brand myself in one direction or another made it really hard to market me. And I think it was a challenge. And I think I would be farther along in my career. I think I would be selling out multiple nights at Madison Square Garden had I just picked a lane because I am that good. I'm really good at what I do, <laughs> but, I, but I'm still asking questions and I'm still experimenting. And I'd rather have that than expose the world to a bitter version of myself where I still am wondering if I picked the right lane because I wanted to be taken seriously. Fuck that. Fuck that. But also, do you think any of that related to sexism, too? Like, do men have, do you think, more license to push edges and boundaries and not have to pick a lane? And Sure. I mean, culturally, the boomers that I love and adore and have toured with, yeah. Robert Plant, Mick Jagger, yeah. you know, and of course, I've never toured with Bowie, but I see him in my dreams every night. So we're fine. <laughs> There's Lucky so you. many of those people who I think their character was a, like me, and Little Richard, I think, is the beginning of this story for me, because I thought he was a woman. I loved him, and I thought he was a woman. And I loved the gritty voice, and whenever I sang it, I would say, I want to listen to her. And I didn't understand. I was like, Tutti Frutti. Her name was Tutti Frutti, as far as I knew. And it, it was only later that I realized that the creativity in music is supposed to be there so that we can climb over those walls. But even creativity and even music, especially recorded music in the record industry, which is different than sitting in a living room and making yes. music or expressing yourself. Good distinction, um, yes. Yeah, those things are never going to just exist on their own in a clean, free, and open and objective space. That the inspiration and spark of an idea mm. that existed inside of Mick Jagger and existed inside of Robert Plant was not coming from a misogynistic place of no. um, continuing to stake their claim within the patriarchy, even by touting women's clothing and hypersexualizing their body and moving it like, you know, Josephine Baker. I saw it as a collaborative, expressive form of finding their way and finding their voice. And I saw what I was doing as the exact same thing. But it, yes, you cannot avoid the fact that they are played on the radio exponentially more than any female artist that wasn't doing that experimentation because they had had to pick a lane. You know, I think that's part of it. So I'm, I'm here to zoom out. That's what my job is yes. on this planet. Yes. Fuck yes to that. Yeah. And representation is so important. And it makes me feel so grateful and happy that you exist and that there's young women that get to watch and listen to what you do. And you're a living, breathing example of exactly what you're talking about. And it's like, we just, yeah. we need that, you know, we need it so badly. Yeah. It's truth. I mean, it's, it's truth in the face of so many versions of this is how it is. This is what's hard about it. This is the challenge. And also the rat race of, I think, so many more voices being heard now. Yes. You know, this access to music 
there's another amazing female artist that I was writing with the other day because I just, I loved her brain. Her name's Claire Brooks. Everybody should check her out. She's incredible. And she was, her life and her perspective is so wildly different than mine. And she was asking like, well, how do I get out there? What do I do? Like, where is the venue for a voice like mine? What is the commodity that I have that is any different than, and she pulls out her phone and shows me like how many people are doing and being linked to the algorithm of kind of the same style that she's doing. Because I mean, this is, there's nothing like her. And yet there's nothing like anyone. That's right. And so our attention and our purpose needs to be focused enough for us to not just be shooting darts into the middle of outer space, you know? And music is, for me, the the voice or, or the path that I chose because it was the loudest sound I could make. But the stories that we tell at, for everybody out there, whether you're a musician or not, I would say it's more about exploring what it feels like from the gut up to be as honest as possible in everything that you create and bring out into the world. Because if you're posing and posturing, then you know, we're all these anemones just going to be running off the edge of the cliff together. And I don't want to fall in a group. If I'm going to fail, I want to do it alone and take that battle axe with me and hopefully help people, you know, take their journey in a, in a way that does feel risky and does feel curious and does feel honest. We're with Grace Potter. The new album is Mother Road. Let's go to music. Is there a song on this album that you feel connects it all with some of the stuff that we've been talking about? Anything pop into your head? All My Ghosts, which is really about journeying back through the chasms of my life in which I let male voices dominate things I was doing and things I was feeling about myself. And basically, I'm hosting a pity party for all of the versions of me that said yes, and all the versions of me that said like, ah, I don't think so, not today. Not today, buddy. Nobody left to rescue me. Cause my poor angels are in recovery. Yeah, the ghosts are gone and they took the weed and they left another big mess for me. Oh, 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 my ghosts. Oh. All My Ghosts is on the new Grace Potter album, Mother Road. She's our guest today on Shiro's. I'm Carmel Holt. Okay, so we close every show by doing an exercise that I call the Shiro's Magic Wand. Are you ready for this? Oh, I love it. Okay, the Shiro's Magic Wand gives you the power, Grace Potter, to change anything in music for women, non-binary people, for queer folks. I know the list is probably a mile long and the wand might feel a little heavy, but just first wave of the wand, what would you change? The billing at music festivals. So like the way the poster is actually built out is names start really big at the top and get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. I would change that. I would put the least known acts, the ones that are crawling up the rungs of CD bars and playing in the street, busking in the street, I'd put their names at the top of the bill and put, you know, me and LL Cool J and LCD Sound System at the bottom. Like, we don't need the big billing. Let's flip this story and expose amazing crowds full of people, smart, smart, wonderful, incredible music fans. That's what they are. Music fans are smart because they've made their choice to go to a music festival. They already know who's playing. They know the headliners. They know, you know, 
the general feeling they might get by going to a festival. But because I grew up and came up in that world, to me, the billing of a music festival sets a tone where the biggest surprises aren't the thing that you're being called to, but it's always the thing that you remember about a festival, like when you and I met at Hunter Mountain that day. That's right, full um, circle. You know, I really believe that we go to a festival because we want to see some big name, but all the happy accidents along the way that will prop up, especially if there's more females and non-binary and trans people pre presenting themselves, just the, the, I think, an ethical level of diversity being considered and taken into the process, not for the look of it, not for the look. It's not like this whole, it's a good look thing. It's about feeling. You cannot create a progressive and beautiful atmosphere of collaboration or even good competition, solid, hearty competition, if you don't bring everybody into that conversation. So change up the billing. I love it. With thanks to Grace Potter. Thank you for being with us on Shiro's. And, and actually, before I wrap up and get into our last song, I just want to give a shout out to Book More Women. If you know that Instagram site, you're nodding yes. I do. Book More Women. I do. Listeners, go check it out. Book More Women. Speaking of music festivals, I actually met the woman behind Book More Women this summer at Newport Folk Festival. Her name is Abby. Shout out Abby. She does it for Abby! no money whatsoever, but just does it out of the goodness of her heart to show us, keep us on track of how She's good. She's clearly a music fan. That's the thing. That's if you're right. a music fan, you can hear good from every direction. Doesn't have a gender, doesn't have a race. Uh, it, there's no assignment to good. It's just good. But the balance is off. Yeah. So there's something we need to capitulate uh, about. And I think that Abby has the right idea. I'm very sad that Grand Point North, my festival, has not been reinitiated yet. But will it? the second that we do, yeah, it will be. Until it does, I'm going to be spending a lot of time in Abby's world looking through and finding opportunities for more voices to get out there and into the conversation. Because what is creativity if it isn't all of us having a chance to be heard, to be seen, to be appreciated? Thank you, Grace Potter. And let's go out with the appropriately titled final track on this album called Masterpiece. Somewhere in the middle of the seventh grade, I realized that everyone my age was an ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From there, everything began to escalate. It's much more fun to climb a gate than a flagpole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thanks to Grace Potter. Thank you for being with us on Shiro's. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I loved it. I had no money, but I had the time. Got some sticky little fingers. The world was mine and my capital face. I stole my way across the deep blue sea. I went looking for my dignity. Stand my passport. If you please.
Many thanks to Grace Potter for being with us. Her new album, Mother Road, is out now on Fantasy Records. She Rose is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake. Our original theme music is by Lucius. She Rose is also a nationally syndicated radio show. You can visit SheRoseRadio.com to find out more and support our work with Patreon or merch from the She Rose shop. Keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Carmel Holt or find us at She Rose Radio. And please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast that helps us grow and bring you more Shiro's. Until next time, remember, music is our superpower. I'm Carmel Holt. Thanks for listening.